Jeremiah 3, verses 14, and to the end. Jeremiah 3, verse 14. Let's read down through verse 18, and we'll pray. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you and we bless you for your word. Your word that is life to our hearts. Your word that reminds us of your love and your grace. Your word that encourages us to live our lives as a reflection of the glory of Christ. We pray, Father, that tonight you will strengthen us by your word. Cleanse us, Father, we pray, so that we can hear clearly everything that you have prepared for our hearts tonight. Help us, Lord, to rightly divide your word so that we may live in these days and times above every circumstance, knowing that you, Lord God, will be with us in whatever trial, in whatever situation, whatever tribulation may meet us as that opportunity to let us stand upon you and upon your word through it all. These things, Father, we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Can you all hear me okay? Okay. Let me share a little story with you to help summarize the first part of chapter 3, what we've studied last week. A man is in bed with his wife when there is a knocking, knocking on the door of their house. He rolls over and he looks at his clock and it's half past three in the morning. The man says, I'm not getting out of bed at this hour. He rolls over. And then a louder knock follows. And his wife says, aren't you going to answer that? So he drags himself out of bed and he goes down the stairs He opens the door, and there's a man standing at the door. It didn't take long for the uh, 
homeowner to realize that this man was drunk. Hi there, slurs the stranger. Can you give me a push? The man says, no, get lost. It's half past three. I was in bed. And he slams the door. And he goes back up to bed and, and he tells his wife what happened. And she said, she said to him, Dave, that wasn't very nice of you. Remember that night that we broke down in the pouring rain on the way to pick the kids up from the babysitter? And, and you had to knock on another man's door to, or that other man's house to get, to get us started again? I mean, what would happen if, if he told us to get lost? But the guy was drunk, says the husband. Doesn't matter, says the wife. He needs our help, and it would be the Christian thing to help him. So the husband gets out of bed, gets dressed again, and he goes down the stairs, and he opens the door, and not, you know, not being able to see the stranger anywhere, he shouts, Hey, do you still want to push? And he hears a voice cry out, Yeah, please. So still being able to, uh, not being able to see the, the stranger, he shouts, well, well, where are you? And the stranger replies, Oh, I'm over here uh, on your swing. Can you give me a push? <laughs> the moral of the story is that God is always looking for sincere repentance from his people and not just playing around. Not looking for us playing around with him. You see, if you remember last week, Judah was playing around with God by thinking that their temple sacrifices and their obligations, in other words, going through all the motions of religion, were enough for them to be safe in the Lord. All the while. In fact, they were just covering up their sin with a cloak of righteousness. As a matter of fact, the Lord gives Judah an astounding indictment here. As we saw last time in verse 11, he said, The Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. At least Israel was backslidden and they didn't try to hide it. But Judah was trying to hide their wickedness, their backsliding, their treachery. And trying to look and appear religious is just playing around with God. And, and Judah, by uh, being blind to the significance of Israel's fall, if you remember, they had about a hundred years to look back in time, you know, to look back in the history of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, after having been split from the southern kingdom. They had all that time to look at what God had done to them in, in taking them into captivity to the Assyrians, and, and they didn't do anything with it. Not only did they not repent, but under the wicked reign of Manasseh later on, they sunk to lower and lower depths of depravity. Let's consider those depths for just a moment. The depths of depravity of Israel. And I should say, at this point, the depths of depravity of Judah, having already known what Israel had gone through. Look at 
look at the ugliness and the wickedness of Judah's sin. Second Kings chapter 21. We need to get an idea where we are in this, in this passage here. The reason why God is saying that they're more treacherous in their wickedness than Israel was. Second Kings 21 verses 1 through 6. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So what does that tell you? That he had done every evil that all of these abominable nations had done, that God had cast out. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal or Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. In the house of the Lord. In the temple. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. There's only one name to be in that house. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Can you just picture a temple that is supposed to be dedicated unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God, the one true and living God, and yet, if you walk into that temple and into the outer courts and into every court there before you get to the, to the place of worship, that all of it is filled with idols of every sort and every kind. And many of them, because they had come from these abominable nations, uh, were, were very perverse in nature. Can you imagine that? Verse, uh, verse 6. Also he made his son pass through the fire. Do you know what that means? That he sacrificed his own children, or his own child, at least in this particular case, in the fires of Molech. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft. He consulted spiritists and mediums. He would have watched the psychic network and he would watch Oprah religiously. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. I would encourage you to read on later, but uh, just jump down to verse 9 because it says, But they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. I'd say that's a pretty wicked picture of people who are supposed to be separated unto their God, their one true God, and they're worshiping every other God that existed in that day and time. Now, understand that most of this wickedness took place about 15 years before Josiah began establishing his reforms in Judah. And you remember that Josiah is a king at the time that uh, Jeremiah begins his ministry. By this time, Israel was already in captivity in Assyria. And as we learned last time, God was calling them back with one condition. He's calling Israel, the northern kingdom, 
back to him with one condition. They needed to repent and return to the Lord. He wanted to forgive them their sin. God is saying to them, come back to me, I will forgive you. But you need to come back in repentance. You need to acknowledge your sin against me. So now the tone changes, and it began to change last week when we were in verses uh, 12 and 13. It began to change from judgment to grace. The tone of God speaking to His people was changing from judgment to grace. Look at verses 12 and 13. Go and proclaim these words toward the north. He's telling Jeremiah, go and preach this to the remnant of Israel. And say, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful. Now, I don't know of any other God that, that might be worshipped or considered in, 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 in the number and pantheon of gods in, in this world, in all the religions, whether major or minor, as it goes that has a God who will say to his own people who he's ready to judge and completely disown, to say to them, I want you to come back. I am merciful. You go back all the way to the law in Exodus chapter 20. We're going to go there a little bit later, but, but you know when you go back and you read, he always mentions the fact that he is a God who is merciful. We have never had two gods in the Bible. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. We have one God in both Testaments. A God who is holy, righteous, just, and true always. But He is a God who is merciful and gracious and full of love toward His people. Whom He has called by his name he says I will not cause my anger to fall on me come back to me I am merciful says the Lord I will not remain angry forever only 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 acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree and you have not obeyed my voice says the Lord acknowledge this confess your sin because I will be faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the heart of God toward us. So with that in mind, we continue with that thought and that invitation as, as we look at our text tonight, verses 14 and 15. Return, he says, O backsliding children. What is the difference here than what we read earlier on in chapter 3? He says, return, O backsliding children. At first he says, return, O backsliding Israel, because he's speaking to Israel particularly to come back to him. Now he says, return, O backsliding children. And who are his children? Israel and Judah. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. He's not married to two, he's married to one. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. 
It goes without saying that the Lord gives many wonderful promises to all who repent of their sin and of their sins. At the onset of chapter 3, God compared his relationship with his people to that of a husband and wife. And as the husband who had been forsaken, he appealed for his wife to turn away from her forbidden lovers and just return back to him. That was his appeal to them. The Lord's heart longed for his people to return. And if they would just repent of their sins and come back to him, he would, he would richly bless them. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that all of us have, have, have had our, you know, our struggles and our trials. We've all stumbled, we've all fallen, and we've also received the very mercy of God to pick us up and to help us start over again. And when we do that, when we are flat on our feet, standing up again after we've fallen and God has raised us up and encouraged us, you know, there, there, there can't be any greater blessing than knowing how much God loves us. Even after our fall. Now he wouldn't want us to continue in that. And continue to do those, those dumb things that we did. But you know he tried to lo loves us away from that. So we can you know, grow more and more. In, in, in wisdom and grace. And in maturity in Christ. But it's just a beautiful picture. You know that when God picks us up. He blesses his people. So in effect the Lord is speaking his message now. To both groups. He's speaking to Israel and Judah. And though the situation never looked darker. The prophet Jeremiah could not lose heart as he's that, you know, as he's that conduit you know, between God and the people and, and the people and God. And he just could not lose heart, but he refused to lose faith for the future of both nations. As the Lord changes from return backsliding Israel to return backsliding children. And when the Lord says, for I am married to you, it's interesting that he is using a word that literally carries the meaning, I am both your husband and your Lord. And you know what that word is tied to? It's interesting. It's tied to the, it's tied to the, the name Baal. But it's pronounced a little differently. But the word Baal means Lord in, you know, in the uh, Phoenician language, as it were. Well, the, the language that it came from, the Chaldean language or whatever. Baal. But it's, it, 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 the, the word it's tied is not tied to the deity. It's, it's tied to the understanding that the word is husband and Lord. Husband and Lord. I am both your husband and your Lord. And he says that because here, we, here again, when we go back to the issue of what has happened, they have fallen away. He has married them, but they have fallen away. They've gone to other lovers. And, and, and God is, in this particular chapter, is emphasizing, I don't want to be shared with anybody else. I'm your husband, and I'm your Lord. I, I'm not shared with anybody else. So in saying that he will take one from a city and two from a family there in verse 14, the Lord was referring to those returning from an exile. Now, Israel had a remnant still in Assyria and, and Jeremiah was anticipating an exile in the southern kingdom of Judah even this early in his ministry. Remember, 
when we get to chapter 29 is the prophecy of, of, of Judah going into captivity for 70 years under the Babylonians. So even though that hasn't happened, he's anticipating this. So what he's getting from the Lord is this picture of a return from exile. So the verse indicates that the number who will truly trust in the Lord will be few. You see, when you read it, it says, I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. It's a picture of just the few in number that are going to be the true remnant and true believers of Israel and Judah that come back to the Lord. And it coincides with the promise that was preached by Isaiah a century before. The promise that he had preached was that a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return, even giving one of his sons that name. In, in, in Isaiah 7 verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and She'ar Yashub. She'ar Yashub is, uh, is Hebrew for a remnant shall return. So he calls one of his sons, a remnant shall return. Your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool, uh, just giving directions there. But uh, the point of the matter is Isaiah even names his own son, a remnant shall return. Because this was what God was saying would happen. That a remnant would return from captivity. And then in verse 15, one word is given about the restored people's future leaders. When they do begin to return. Now we can say they do return into the land. They're given leaders for a time. Again, in the, in the near, in the near uh, fulfillment of prophecy, we, we have to always bridge that gap between the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. There'll be near fulfillment that doesn't quite match up to the, the full prophecy, but eventually there will be uh, others come later. So the idea is when you see verse 15, it says, I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Now the Hebrew word for shepherds comes from a verb that, that primarily means to feed and, and was used for those who pastored a flock. It also means to lead, to govern, and to rule. So I'm giving you leaders and governors and rulers and feeders. In this sense then, these men were responsible for encouraging those whom they governed. Because the, the very act of, of feeding was an encouragement. You know, one of the ideas of, of, of torture, you know, in, in, in war and all of that is that you don't, you don't feed your prisoners good food. You don't give them, you know, a lot of times you just wanted to get information from them or you just want them to have a bad time, you know, whatever the, the rules of war are. That's a, you know, it's an oxymoron to me, the rules of war. But, but the, the idea is, you know, when you deal with, with that, you know, how many of our own, you know, family serving in previous wars, uh, if they had been captured and, and taken in as prisoners of war, you know, they, they suffered greatly. And, and one of the places that they suffered was malnutrition because they didn't feed them very well. So you see, the idea of feeding is, a, is supposed to be a good thing. It is supposed to be an encouraging thing. And if God gives you the responsibility of leading your flock, then you want to give your flock the best food that you can give them. Because that's the encouragement to the flock. But one of Israel's problems through the, through the years was the lack of leaders with integrity who had the best interest of their people 
at heart. So how many times do we see in Scripture that uh, the people could be seen as, as sheep without a shepherd? All through the, uh, the, the uh, uh, times of the kings, through the times of the prophets, even into the time of Jesus. Where Jesus could see the people who were like sheep without shepherds. And what were the shepherds supposed to do? Feed the flock. To do what? To encourage them. I don't know about you, I'm always encouraged after a meal. I was especially blessed today a couple of times. Especially encouraged. (laughs) But I want you to think about this issue. What does God want to feed us with? What What does He want to feed us with? Does He want to feed us junk food? Entertainment? Does He want to feed us manifestations? A lot of people, boy, they're just hungry for manifestations. They want to see things. They'll travel miles. They'll travel hundreds of miles because they hear something's happening over here. Something's happening in Toronto. Something's happening in Pensacola or Pepsi-Cola or whatever it is. Something's happening in Orlando. Something's happening here. Something's happening there. I tell you what, something's happening here. The moment I see what God's Word is saying to my heart, He's speaking to me. He's right here. He's right here with us. People are hungry for things. You know, they're hungry for experiential things that happen to, you know, stimulate uh, the senses, but uh, not to stimulate the heart. So God doesn't want to feed us junk food, entertainment, and manifestations. He wants to feed us His Word. He wants to feed His people the Word of God, for in it, it is knowledge, in it is understanding that become blessings. The knowledge and understanding become blessings when we apply them to our lives. If you desire to seek truth, God will give you shepherds after his own heart that will feed you what you need to grow in the Lord. If you refuse the truth, he will give you shepherds that will tickle your ears and leave you spiritually malnourished. This was something that Paul had to deal with, or actually Timothy had to deal with, and Paul's writing to him about it in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, when he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. You see where the ears are? They want to be tickled, but they're itching. They're itching to be tickled. They will heap up for themselves, teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I mean, I've had it. I'm not. The Lord has given me the, the privilege of pastoring this church for almost 25 years. And in 25 years, I've heard everything. I've heard people say, you know, it's, it's kind of boring here. You just, all you do is teach the Bible. You know what I say? I say well, thanks. That's what I want to do. That's what God's called me to do. I know what you want. I can dance for you. You know? pull a string of stuff out of my ear, you know. What do you want? <laughs> I've heard it all. But it doesn't move me because I know what God's called me to do. 
And I hope and pray that you're receiving it. And that when you apply the word of God to your life, that you see the changes and you see God working and, and you rejoice in it. And I see it on your faces. And even when I see struggles on your face and I, I ask you what's going on, you say, you know, God's working. And I know that, you've, that you got it, that you're getting it. People want to be tickled all the time. Well, getting back to our text, verses 14 and 15 are leading verses. They're leading us into this next passage. But they're leading verses to take us into the anticipation of the millennial kingdom or the millennium or the thousand year reign of Christ. So if you look at verse 16, notice what it says. Then it shall come to pass. And that's an important phrase. Then it shall come to pass. So we're looking at possible short-term fulfillment or, or near fulfillment, but coming to pass usually refers to a, a, a far fulfillment as well. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days. Wow. Well, that happens, of course, you know. And we, we know that the people are in the land during the time of Jesus, but then about 70 years later, what happens? Well, they're not in the land anymore. What's happening today? The people are getting back into the land. And they're in the land. And every day, they are doing everything they can to continue to exist as a nation. They're in Israel. Because everybody who lives around them, they don't want them there. And, and please understand this. There can be no peace. There can be no true peace. Israel is seeking after it. Israel will do whatever they can to have peace with its neighbors. But you know what the other nations do? The United Nations, for example, you know, in bringing all the nations together. The United Nations will bring everybody together and then they will say, okay, Prime Minister of Israel, you need to meet with, you know, the leader of, of the Palestinians and whatnot. And, and, and Washington has, has, has said that you can do it, you know, in, there in, in America or wherever it is. And they come and they shake hands and they don't look like they're very happy about doing it. And, and, but Israel wants the peace. But it's the other side that, that's just lying. They, 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 don't, they're not, they don't want peace. Bottom line, they're not really seeking peace. The irony is the United Nations keeps giving those others the Nobel Peace Prize. It makes no sense. There have been so many people who are trying to make peace there. We won't see peace until Jesus comes. And it, and it is it is a true it is a true fact that if you research, you go back all you you have to go back before 1948 in the uh, the beginning of the existence of the of the state of Israel. But but uh, just the very fact that Israel is where they are today in the land, every Arab nation, practically every Arab nation that is militantly opposed to Israel. They don't want peace. They want them in the sea. They want the land themselves. The problem is, the land belongs to God. And God said, I've given it to my people. Now you can't argue with that. But people are going to try, and that's why we're going to wait to see the Lord come. So, 
Understand that's the, the, the that's always an underlying thing in Scripture. So it, co- it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more. Now this is really going to the future. <laughs> They will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord. Notice, gathered to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. So we know that the end of wickedness is going to come. And then it says, in those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. These verses do indeed form a unit. When the Lord's people ideally govern, verse 15, the ideal government, therefore it's kind of pointing to the future, the ideal government, his earthly throne will no longer be a mere ark. The Ark of the Covenant. It's going to be an entire city. I want you to note the bold statement in verse 16. The Ark of the Covenant shall not come to mind. They shall not remember it. They shall not visit it. They shall, uh, nor shall it be made anymore. They won't, they won't make any more copies of it. Indiana Jones will be out of a job. His entire city... God's entire city of Jerusalem will be the rallying point of all nations now converted. That's the millennial kingdom. And his divided Israel will be home and reunited. House of Judah, house of Israel, together. But first, a question has to be asked. What did the Ark of the Covenant represent? What did the Ark of the Covenant represent? Simply, it represented God's presence with his people. God's presence among His people. Exodus 25, verses 21 and 22. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. The mercy seat would then be that cover above the ark, which was the box that was carrying the Ten Commandments and, and the rod of, of, um, of Aaron and all. But, but the, the idea is the cover was the seat, and the seat had the two cherubim on, on top of it. But this was the what was called the mercy seat. The bema seat, now in the, in translated into the Greek. But you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you. Notice, I will meet with you there, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. I'll meet with you there. So God said, you know, not only will you have the ark, but now I want you to build a tabernacle. We talked a little bit about the tabernacle this weekend on Sunday. And it was there that the, the, pillar, of fire by, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night would always meet right above the mercy seat, being in the presence of His people. And so the people must have been shocked then when Jeremiah was proclaiming that the prophecy, or proclaiming this prophecy, that there would come a day when the ark would be gone, when the ark would be forgotten, and it would never be missed. I mean, we've got people today looking for the ark of the covenant. Some people think it's way down below 
the, the Western Wall somewhere down there. I mean, they're still kind of searching for it. And, and you know, the ones that are, uh, you know, kind of holding the Temple Mount area are not allowing them to do any more excavations underneath the wall because, of course, you know, they're controlling everything that goes from here all the way down to the core of the earth, I suppose. And, and, and But then there's others who say, wait a minute, I think I know where the Ark is. It's over in Ethiopia. And there's, you know, they go down there and they see a box at some... Uh, the opens, I guess, have made or something. Possibly, maybe, you know. But, it, it, you know, what are we doing? We're always looking for things. We're looking for, you know, I mean, God had, you know, the, the, when they had that bronze serpent uh, made, you know, to heal the people out there in the wilderness, you know, God, God commanded to destroy that thing because then people are going to take that and they're going to worship it. Always looking for something to worship, you know. You know, you're not even going to miss it. Why? It represents the presence of the Lord. Where is it? Well, this is something that Jesus made very clear to the woman at the well in Samaria. An interesting conversation about worship that actually came up when Jesus nails her about her her life. (laughs) You're not married, are you? No, but the guy you're, you know, they're living with right now, you know, after so many husbands and whatnot, she says, Lord, let's talk about worship. I'll be talking about my life, in other words, let's talk about worship. And, and, and you'll notice in John 4, verse 19, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Why did she say that? Because he knew her heart. He knew how, he, how she was living. But then she said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. Can you all see that okay? Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. What's Jesus saying? Something better is coming, you see. The ark is just a picture. The ark is just a picture. The ark of the covenant was a picture of God present among his people. But in the kingdom age, we will need a picture for we will have the reality as the Lord is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. He's the one that we'll be looking for. His very presence will be in Jerusalem. Nobody's going to miss the Ark of the Covenant. Because Jesus is there. Now which would you rather have? I'd rather have Jesus to worship there. Than some box. And when you have the person, you don't need the picture. Consider something that was written in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. With a major quote from the book of Jeremiah, Hebrews 7, I'm sorry, Hebrews 8, verse 7, it says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, notice, then no place would have been sought for a second. Why, if everything was just going to be perfect under the law, then why would we need anything else? But notice, verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Notice, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind 
and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. If we have the person, we don't need the picture. You guys don't sit around, I know I've used this example before, you don't sit around on Thanksgiving Day around a table of a picture of a turkey. You, you sit around the real turkey. Once the, once the, I mean, you can have a picture if you want and say, that's what's coming. But as soon as the, pic, as soon as the real turkey comes and, and we put it on the table, the heck with a picture. Throw it away. Got the real thing. And so there would be a new covenant that would change hearts. A new covenant that would change hearts. Is this not what is needed even today? I think that too often we, in trying to cover up faults, in trying to cover up inadequacies or even sins, in trying to cover them up, we, we, we tend to, you know, to cover our hearts from people. But the fact of the matter is, in doing that, we're also trying to do that with God. And, and as if to say, well, you know, well, if nobody knows what I'm, where I'm at spiritually, if I can get them to think I'm over here rather than way back here, you know. But God already knows. You can't fool God. You guys can fool me all you want. But you don't really because I know that God knows your heart. And it's not for me to judge it. It's, he already knows it. So I'm just going to try to love you to get you to where you, you just realize that you don't have to go through all of that, you know, all those mental gymnastics to try to cover things up. Listen, if you came to Jesus, he's changed your heart. And you should have a new heart and a new mind that loves the Lord and loves one another and loves people and loves the lost and, and loves to serve the Lord and loves to worship the Lord and loves to give to the Lord and loves to do everything that God has called us to without any problem because it's the heart that God knows. This world is telling you, get this in line, get this in gear, get this all filled up. And if there's a problem with it, you know, well, we'll, you know, we'll just give you a frontal lobotomy or something. But when we come to Christ, he deals with this. That is, by the way, connected to this. He renews our mind when he changes our hearts. So, it's needed today. Examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. 
Examine your heart before the Lord. Remember I said earlier on in in our introduction to the book of Jeremiah that the heart is very prominent throughout this whole. It's one of the key themes of the book of Jeremiah. So, if this was important to declare to Israel 600 years before Christ, it must be doubly relevant to us who have reached the foothill of the cross. That the heart still matters to God. The Lord always seeks devotion of the heart for those on the expedition to eternity. I want you to remember this little phrase. We shall travel all the better for keeping the journey's end in view. We shall travel all the better for keeping the journey's end in view. The great saints of the faith, men like Jonathan Edwards, and even in more um, modern times, Leonard Ravenhill, A.W. Tozer, Charles Spurgeon, men who would say, you know, what one of them said, keep eternity on my eyeballs, Lord. Lord, keep eternity on my eyeballs. I, I want to see eternity. I, that's, that's my journey's end. But keep it fresh on my eyes as I live in this forsaken land. As I live amongst a people of unclean lips. We shall travel all the better for keeping the journey's end in view. One last thought here. Just just a thought for the even beyond the millennial kingdom, because consider as well the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Because in Revelation twenty one, verse twenty two it says, But I saw no temple in it. (laughs) No temple, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, even the temple is a picture. And by the time we came to the New Testament, what did we learn? That we as believers in Jesus Christ, sorry, we as believers in Jesus Christ, each and every one of us individuals are what? We are all the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each and every one of us individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So from that broad perspective of of, of beyond the millennial kingdom and and going now into the new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem, what do we know? There's no temple. Why? Because God's there. And the Lamb, they're the temple. They're where we come to worship. They're who we worship. Well, let's go on. Verse Verse 18 then reminds us of the promise of restoration of the nation. First of all, after the Babylonian captivity, which was still to come, and it could also refer to modern-day Israel and to the return to the land of promise and the eventual kingdom that Jesus is going to one day set up. Verse, uh, that was verse 18. So that leads us now into verse 19. But I said, How can I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the hosts of the nations? And I said... You shall call me my father, and not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard on the desolate heights, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. 
Return you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Indeed, we come to you, for you are the Lord God. Truly, in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Now, at this point, a dialogue takes place between the Lord and His people. The prophet Jeremiah in this section returns to the thought conveyed in verse 5 of this chapter. So if you look at verse 5, it says, Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. While the Lord is speaking in verse 19, maintaining that he would gladly give the people all the blessings they desired, but there was one requirement they had overlooked. They must remain faithful to Him. Which, of course, included repenting of their sins and refraining from future abandonment and departing from God. So you need to remain faithful and you need to stay with me. Don't abandon me. Don't go off and, 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 and depart from me for other things and other gods. And so the Lord once again reminds them what they had done and how He wants to restore them and bring them home again. You know, there's always that reminder. Now, you know, you might say, well, I thought God for, always forgot ourselves, you know. Well, the question would then come back, why are you still remembering them where you're at? There's no need to be remembering what God has already taken care of. Unless there's a problem. Unless we haven't confessed, unless we haven't repented, unless we haven't left these things. So he talks about this, you know, he, he reminds them of where they've been. And then the, de- the mention of the desolate heights and the hills were, were where they worship the false gods. And the Lord is telling them there is no hope or salvation in them. No hope. There's no hope in the trees, there's no hope in the hills, there's no hope in the mountains. Their only hope and their only salvation is the Lord God Himself. I want you to turn to Psalm 121. And I want you to look at this particular psalm from beginning to end. It's not long, it's only eight verses. It's called a song of ascents. And it says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth. And even... Forevermore. Now, the picture here is the Jewish people coming up to Jerusalem, a song of ascents. And so there's a section of, of, of the book of Psalms, if you'll notice, uh, and you'll see those verses uh, or those Psalms around Psalm 121. There's a number of them there that say a song of ascents. And these were the songs that they sang as they moved up from every direction, north, south, east, and west. But they always went up. You always go up to Jerusalem. So it was a song of ascent. And here is, you know, it was they were going up to a city on a hill, and then eventually on Mount Zion, 
There was the temple of God, and they were looking to God for help, not the hills or the mountains, you see. So it says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. But are they supposed to focus on the hills? No, from whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. So it's, it's not right then to start thinking that, you know, well, you know, they, you, they look up to the hills. No, the idea is you're looking up the hills because you have a destination. You have a place where you're going. You're going there to, you know, to, to acknowledge the fact that you're trusting the Lord in everything that happens in your life. He made the heavens and the earth. He's not going, as long as we trust Him, He's not going to allow our feet to be moved. He's going to keep us in, in the midst of our own slumber. He's going to keep Israel. He's going to... Uh, be their keeper, their shade, their protector. So, they were looking to God for help, not the hills, not the mountains. In whom do you trust? In whom do we trust? From whom are you looking for help? You know, it's a very sad thing that today some people are looking for a lot of things for help. Is it your job that you're looking at for your help? Is it your retirement savings? Is it your health? Is it your intellect or your intelligence? Whatever it is, it will fail you. It will fail you. Whatever it is that we put our trust in, that is not God, that is not the Lord, that is not Jesus Christ, it will fail you. Put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust in the Lord. He alone is our hope. He alone is our salvation. Another lesson to learn from this passage is that that the Lord is not to be shared and His laws are not to be bent. The Lord is not to be shared. I mentioned that earlier. God does not want to be shared with other gods because there are no other gods. There's only one. But whatever gods there are, there are the gods of our own making or the gods that we've adapted to or adopted and brought into our lives. You know, we can either talk about deities or we can talk about things, you know. Things can be just as much a God in our lives as idols. And so we have to be very careful. God does not want to be shared. See, when he says to his people, I'm your husband and your Lord, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to share you with anybody either. You know, but if you go off, I don't want to be shared. Exodus 20. If you know Bible 101, you realize Exodus 20 is the chapter of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Yes, Oprah, God says he's a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. God says, I don't I'm not going to share I don't want to be shared. 
Isaiah 43, verses 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. And lastly, the actions of God's people have covered them with shame and reproach. The actions of God's people have covered them with shame and reproach, but God is standing there with forgiveness if they would only turn back to Him. Jeremiah 3, verses 24 and 25. For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our reproach covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even to this day and have not obeyed the, obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. The question is often asked, was this sincere repentance? I mean, the people seem to be taking full responsibility for their folly and disobedience. To lie down in shame suggests they were overwhelmed by guilt. But if these words had been an expression of sincere repentance and return to God, the rest of Jeremiah's ministry would have been unnecessary. Yes, do you see that? Do you understand that? If these words had been an, exp uh, an expression of sincere repentance and return to God, the rest of Jeremiah's ministry would have been unnecessary. True repentance requires admission of sin, but more than that, there must be sorrow for sin and a genuine turning from it. David cried out in Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You can see the difference throughout all of Scripture, the difference between Esau and Jacob, the difference between the prodigal son and his brother, all through Scripture. There's a sorrow that leads to life and salvation and a sorrow that leads to death. There's a sorrow that truly says, I am sorry that I offended you. Sorry that I offended a, a holy God. And then there's a sorrow that says, I'm sorry that I got caught. That's the sorrow of the world. I'm sorry I got caught. What is the sorrow that you experience in repentance? You see, the God that we have sinned against 
is also the God that says, but I want to forgive you. Come back to me. Return to me, backsliding Israel. Return to me, backsliding children. And acknowledge your sin. And I will forgive you. And I will bless you. Now, I don't know about you, but I I couldn't pass that up. How can we pass that up? How can we pass up such great salvation? So great a salvation that God is saying, I love you. You know, what pains me sometimes is to see expressions on people's faces that are saying, you know, that's for somebody else. It's not for me. They're not talking to me. I'm okay. You can talk to all these other sinners, but it's not me. Folks, Jesus said, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden. To have that attitude is to have the same attitude of Israel and Judah who were heavy laden, but they wanted answers from other gods. And the only answer that came was bondage and death. We have a God who loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. No matter what happens to us in this life, whatever happens to us, if we know Christ, Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So much better for me to be with the Lord, but if he wants me here, I'll just stay here until he takes me home. But you can't have that attitude if you don't know the Lord. Because you don't know what's on, as they say, what's on the other side. Back in the 60s, Jim Morrison thought that he could break on through to the other side, but the other side only had death and demons and destruction. For believers in Jesus Christ, we're already on the other side. And we should rejoice because of it. I'm going to leave you with this passage. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul says this. Beginning at verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved in him, 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worked all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purpose purchase possession to the praise of his glory he who made us sit in the heavenly places rejoice rejoice that's how much he loves us that's how much he loves you let's pray